Hello everyone and welcome back to the EdTech Podcast and 2018. Let's do this! And also welcome back to the Pearson Future Tech for Education series on the EdTech Podcast. My name is Sophie Bailey and each week I'll be exploring the challenges and opportunities of future tech for education with contributors from across industry, research and academia. This week we're looking at language learning and tech. Current estimates suggest that there are over 1 billion people learning English worldwide. Recent predictions also suggest that those learning English as a second or foreign language will double by the year 2020 to nearly 2 billion people. But how we learn languages is changing. Apps, MOOCs, chatbots and online tutoring services have all worked to reduce the time and investment needed to pick up and master a language, whilst voice recognition services like Amazon Alexa or Google Home have made practising languages even easier right in your home. At the more extreme end, some advanced technologies have even brought into question whether learning a language in the traditional sense will be needed in the future, and should it be humans or machines testing second language acquisition. Language learning is then an interesting lens through which to question how future tech for education will impact us by both highlighting a where we may need to adjust and b how we can take advantages as language learners and teachers via new scenarios supported through technology. Here's Dennis Hurley, Director of Future Tech at Pearson. Thanks for having me back, Sophie. It's great to be here. So first question on languages. How is language learning acting as a test bunny for educational future tech? It's not limited to language learning, but language as a whole. Many aspects of our personal lives and our society as a whole are being altered dramatically by exponential technologies. But language might be the most significantly altered in more ways than just the emergence of emojis. So there are ways that we are responding to advances in language technologies, and there are ways that we are proactive using new technology to learn languages. So here's what I mean. I'll give you two examples of technological breakthroughs that are affecting our usage of language. In January of this year, Google updated their translation software. Just a few years ago, some of the translations were amusingly inaccurate, and now it's very difficult to tell the difference between a human translation and one that Google Translate did. We also have the emergence of hearable devices. It's a form of a wearable device in which you put it in your ear and it can do near real-time translation. So what this means is that we can understand other languages much more quickly, which is going to change why we need to learn new languages. It's not that we are not going to need to learn new languages, but the the focus will be more on the cultural aspects, what the language means itself, you know, and, and also for business purposes, it's important to be able to speak in other people's native tongue. There's a great quote by Nelson Mandela. If you talk to a man in a language he understands, that goes to his head. If you talk to him in his language, that goes to his heart. And then there's the cultural aspect of that, I suppose, as well. So you may have a a translation earpiece, but you still need all the cultural nuances to serve you well in a business meeting or, or otherwise. Exactly. So I moved to Australia uh, back in 2005. And even though it's an English speaking country, there were cultural differences that I needed to learn. And I read about it beforehand and did some some studying up, but a lot of it 
didn't uh, didn't I didn't learn a lot of it until I was actually immersed. Now this is where we could use new technology. We could actually use virtual reality and put a learner in the experience where they're interacting with people in that other culture. Of course, we could do that uh, whether they have to speak Spanish or French or Japanese. So, I mean, on the kind of mixed reality side of things, what are some of the services that you've seen, whether they're VR or AR, in in language learning? One of the best ways to learn a new language, again, is to be immersed in it because you are forced to take chances and to fail and to learn. If you are in a virtual reality experience, uh, say you have to buy tickets from a train station, you have to ask for it and there's, there's less inhibition to take chances. And how about the biosyncing part that we've talked about before? I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, if you're looking as someone assessing someone's language proficiency, will we use any biosyncing technology to test for sweaty palms if someone's feeling stressed in a language learning situation? Or are there any other applications there that you know about as well? I don't know of any applications that are using these technologies yet, but in including biosyncing technologies would enable you to really fine-tune what you're teaching the language learner. So your example is a, is a good one. If the user is stressed in a situation, and that sort of nuance would be picked up in, in conversation by the other person that you're speaking with in, say, a professional situation. In a training situation, we could use a form of biosyncing like voice recognition or galvanic skin response to ensure that the learner is comfortable. And that that's quite interesting because the, the technology now is fairly sophisticated with regards to detecting dialect and pronunciation correctly and those kind of things as well. It definitely is. As we make improvements to language learning technology and we can pick up just on, on specific accents, we can help people learn with, say, a, uh, a sophisticated London accent like you have or um, <laughs> <laughs> a New York accent like I think I have. <laughs> Wonderful. That's what we want. Okay, so if I'm a teacher listening in and I'm thinking, okay, there's all these new technologies and you know opportunities for me to create new ways of learning languages and both engage my students, but also teach languages effectively. How would you suggest that they make the most of, of those technologies that are available? And also, I suppose part of that is adjusting to you know, the, the, the impact of the technologies um, on language learning. One thing we have to be careful with in new technologies is the shiny object, something that we use because it seems very interesting and exciting initially, but uh, very quickly it becomes old hat just because, again, it's, it's a novelty. Uh, you can initially use that in the classroom to get a level of excitement, say, with Google Translate. Uh, you can can point your phone at a sign or a menu. I often do this while traveling, uh, and you can understand it does get an instant translation of that text into your native language. And that's certainly very exciting. So you can show the practical aspects of learning a language. And again, you don't want to have to rely on on using a, a, a translation tool. It's much more personal if you can actually speak that language, but putting it in context is always very valuable for the learner. So our language learning future propels us right into the heart of those awkward foreign exchanges without needing to leave the comfort of our own front room. 
But what if the very nature of language learning was about to be changed through technology? Companies like Waverly Labs and Lingmo International are doing just that by launching real-time translation earpieces as we speak. That is to say, the Babel fish from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which allowed Earthling Arthur Dent to understand alien races, is now a thing of reality. What does this mean for our hard slog as language learners and teachers? Here's Andrew Okia, founder and CEO of Waverly Labs, to tell us more. First question, please can you describe what Waverly Labs and pilots are in a nutshell? Well, we think of, we think of Waverly Labs developing innovative consumer products and services. And Pilot is our first product that we've been developing uh, for several years now. It is an earpiece. Um, it's a translating earpiece. The Pilot uses uh, advancements in, in speech recognition and machine translation coupled with wearable technology to allow a user to uh, have someone else's speech translated directly in their ear. And based on that and the advancement of language learning technology, what's your opinion? Will we even need to learn languages in the future? Well, this question comes up a bit, and I think there's still a lot of nuances to to knowing the language natively or knowing the language by learning it that machine translation just can't, well, that it can't translate, to be quite honest. When you think of communication in general, there's a lot of things that, that have to be communicated between two people, um, and learning a language is always going to be better than, than having a machine do it for you. Um, also, we're not quite at human parity when it comes to translation, at least machine translation isn't. So maybe in seven to 10 years, it's predicted by different research groups that will be there. But today, we're not quite there. Last thing is there's just beauty in, in learning a new language. Knowing and learning Spanish or French is there's beauty in understanding the custom of that language. This just helps for those languages which you can't learn. So which would be the languages that you'd identify as, you know, uh, really relative and uh, relevant for what pilots are doing? Well, we're focused on five main languages now with our first release, French, Italian, Portuguese, Spanish, along with English. Those are the, they're all Latin or Romance based for a few reasons. Um, most of our customers come from those groups, from those language countries, I guess. But with the next release later this winter, we'll plan to be introducing 10 more languages, uh, much more global. So a few in Southeast Asia, like Chinese Mandarin, Japanese, Korean, um, you have uh, Arabic and Hindi, as well as Russian, German, Greek, and Polish and Turkish. So that's really fascinating. So in your scenario, you, you know, you would still have that love of languages, perhaps learn one or two languages, but perhaps not have the time or the capacity to, to learn 10. And then you'd use pilot as a sort of extension of your own language learning abilities. Yeah, we hope it's we hope it, it, it works as a compliment. Of course, you can't learn every language and we're the world's getting smaller and smaller every day. For those of us who travel quite a bit, we hope this complements that need wherever you are. And then I know that uh, sort of Waverly Labs is looking at, you know, many different applications of, of your technology in terms of um, healthcare and, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the business sector. What, what are the particular applications within education that you envisage? Well, you're right. We've had a lot of interest in a lot of different sectors, international business, finance, healthcare, but we have had quite a bit of interest in the education sector. We get, I can give you stories of customers who reached out to us saying that this will help them communicate with their, with the parents of their students who don't speak the language natively or how this will help the student to um, understand and interpret what the teacher is saying who doesn't speak that language natively. So there's a lot of different interests coming from the education sector. We're trying to explore it more to really understand what the needs are. 
And so you see this as a potential complement for existing language teachers or students, as opposed to sort of a replacement in that sense? Yeah, there's something, I think, I think they can complement each other. Um, machine translation or software, really, we're just talking about software here. Software can, can guide you and, and help you learn, but I think there's, there's more power or just as much power, if, if nothing else, in having a human who understands and knows how to teach, right? So um, for everyone listening in who's excited about getting hold of a pilot, when do they go into production and when will that technology be live and available to all of us? Yeah, so we go into private beta and actually this week and next week with a few customers and a few select people and just to test out the bugs. And then we go through our stages of our production testing that Bill can elaborate on further. But we begin shipping at the end of uh, November to um, our, our mass audience. Very exciting. And then this week's episode is is on language learning as a test bunny for educational future tech. So it seems that a lot of the really interesting technology developments that happen out there, language learning as a sector sort of jumps on them early. So thinking about VR, AR um, and other applications, are there any particular technologies or trends that you're seeing in language learning through your research and focus in this area that you're excited about? We're still at a pretty nascent stage where we are still exploring how we can apply our software to language learning. We do get a, get a lot of feedback from teachers in the education sector, and we're thinking about ways how we can use a pilot in our software to to complement that experience. So one example would be if you're speaking, could the pilot earpiece just recite what you're saying back to you, but in the language that you're trying to learn? So those are there are different ways we're trying to explore the um, the space. Andrew's belief is our passion for language learning will continue, but translation earpieces will act as an assistant as we get beyond our second or third language. You can see the application of this in business and emergency situations straight away, but what is the underlying technology for the pilot earpiece and how does this differ with previous translation techniques like Google Translate? What even is neural machine translation anyway? Here's William Gothels, co-founder and the tech bod behind Waverly Labs. To kick off on the, on Andrew's last point, I know that other people are doing similar things through Spotify or the uh, Amazon Echo out there. So will um, Pilot be interoperable with, with some of those uh, virtual assistants and uh, other voice uh, uh, tools as well? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, we have it set up. Um, you can use it as earpieces, stream music. You can use it as a connected device as well. So if you have Siri on your phone, you know, you can connect via your phone with them as Bluetooth devices. But if you're asking if we have our own assistant, we do not have that right now. In terms of the technology behind Pilot, how does Pilot work? And how is it different to if people are imagining translation headsets at conference or at conferences or Google Translate? How's Pilot sort of specifically different? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There's a, a lot of ways that we see it as being pretty different. You know, when you talked about the UN, they actually have live translators. Um, and so that's obviously a big difference. But what we have on the technology side, you know, it's nice that you can put these earpieces in and we give you the ability to put your phone away. So instead of you know, talking to a screen or, or having this kind of intermediate, we feel like it's more human interaction. You know, language has been estimated to be, you know, 70 to 80 percent visual and not seeing a person doesn't really allow you to see all the nuances of language. So we think it's uh, really important to be able to kind of put your screens away 
and speak to somebody. And the the other question was about whether you could explain to us what neural machine translation is. Yeah, when it comes to neural machine translation, a lot of the really interesting innovations there has been kind of moving from what was called supervised learning to unsupervised. So instead of having a translation from one word to another word and saying yes, no, having kind of a supervisor correcting it, what NMT has done is it, it created a lot of of this unsupervised intermediate where you take translations and you look not just at the word, but the phrase and the words before and after, and you look at it. And there's been some papers that, that call it, you know, a new machine language where it kind of is put in an intermediate step before it's actually translated into the third language. So what's occurring is the translation and the neural machine part of this is actually looking on how to finally get to the final translation. In the meantime, it's creating kind of a nebulous step that's matching information. And so between your final language and your initial language, there's an intermediate step. And that's kind of like the, the really interesting part of the NMT that is, that's kind of like revolutionized and increased our ability to translate more accurately in the recent years. That, that's really interesting. So that's to basically avoid some of the situations you can have with things like Google Translate, where it becomes a very literal translation, which doesn't work sort of across cultures and across different languages. Yeah, and, and that's been a problem for a long time. People were matching up either phonemes, uh, parts of the word, or they're matching up the word literally to each other. And that's not how different languages work. I don't know if you speak other languages. A very uh, pidgin French, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, as you know, there's a lot of words there. I mean, that that translate not exactly right. You want to, you wouldn't want to translate every bonjour into hello because it's not exactly what it means every time. Yeah, yeah. And is that neural machine translation NMT? Is that the technology behind Pilot? Well, yeah, it's a good question. So we first have we have our own de- database, and we look for these machine translations internally. If we cannot find, or we have a little confidence interval, we're able to look at every other system out there and say, hey, does anybody else have this translated and do we think it's better? So we have what we call language optimization as well. So we can use anybody else to make sure, hey, we're giving you the best possible translation that exists from any technology. So, um, and then we can incorporate it into our engine, which we find is uh, really accurate and really exciting. That's really interesting. So is that, is that using AI to basically go out and make sure across all of the translations that have already taken place that you're using, you're optimizing the best possible example? Right, yeah. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of different types of AI that are being incorporated. Exactly. Interesting. So how have you managed to work with accents and colloquialisms, which are always uh, painful? Yeah, you know, that's, um, there's, there's been different ways that people... Uh, and different engines are utilizing them. Sometimes they're just they're just rote. Like you you can find you know it's raining cats and dogs and try to translate it. Um, as we talked about uh, NMT, when you see that expression before and after cats and dog, you know what that likely meaning is trying to convey. Um, so there is that effort. But the most accurate way as of right now is to really hardwire once you recognize. Um, an idiom to then kind of modify it into another language and the idiom there um, matching isn't always perfect but you know we're starting to get there. I see you've worked for NASA, the Navy and uh, other government departments before Bill so how do you see this kind of fitting in in terms of uh, working with some of those organizations as well? 
yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You know, obviously, internationally, there is a lot of communication. You know, you have projects that are worked on throughout the world. Organizations like NATO, you need to have cross-communication. Um, so we hope from a standpoint of giving someone language translation, you're breaking down the barriers to have more accurate partnerships. We obviously don't want misinterpretation when it comes to a treaty or, or anything like that, right? Bringing us back down to earth again, it's worth remembering that language learning has huge implications for people's social and economic well-being. It's a staple criteria of immigration departments, it advances us or holds us back at school and work, and nationally, a decrease in languages learnt is shown to have a direct impact on economic growth. So, what's the best way to test our foreign language proficiency in a way that is consistent and monitors progress over time? Here's former language teacher, now second language measurement expert at Pearson, Bill Bonk. Hi Sophie. So first question, what is automated scoring and speech recognition? Um, In the part of Pearson that I work in, we use automated scoring and uh, speech recognition to assess people's proficiency in foreign languages or potentially in their native language. Automated scoring has been around for a long time. Many people might have uh, filled in bubble sheets with A, B, C, D answers on multiple choice tests. um, And those have been around for quite a long time. Those were designed to be automatically scored. You know, a scanner machine would read in those responses and then, um, you know, assign you a a zero or a one, incorrect or a correct, and then um, top them all up to get you a score. Um, We've taken automated scoring to um, quite other levels where you either look at what some how someone has written in response to a question. They might write an essay, they might write a paragraph summarizing something, and um, um, automated scoring technologies can look at that text, which in many cases might already be digitized, and um, then analyze it and uh, assign a score, which is not just a correct or incorrect, but which might be on a rating scale. Um, And we can also now do that with speech. So we can take automated speech recognition um, systems and convert uh, fluent, fluently spoken, the kind of speech that we normally produce off the cuff. We, it has errors in it, it has false starts, it has mispronunciations, it might even be heavily accented because it's in a foreign language for us and our, our pronunciation is under a great amount of influence from our first language. And so we can take that speech, um, turn it into text, and then score that again in this way of like a rating scale. You can assign many different kinds of scores to the same response. You might have somebody describe a picture and then you can look at the pronunciation, at the fluency, at the content of what they said and how correct or how well it matches what was in the picture and many other traits. And machine scoring makes all of this possible um, almost immediately. So it takes a lot of the cost and the effort away from um, assigning humans the task of sitting there listening to these things or reading them through and giving um, ratings on a scale or a scoring rubric, as we call it. So that's very interesting because, you know, you talk there about the the cost implications of using humans. But what other reasons do you also think that it's automated scoring is a superior system to using humans for marking tests and progress in language learning? Yeah, I mean, just, just like in everything, there are trade-offs. Um, it's superior in some ways, especially with regard to the consistency of scoring. And I, and I should mention that these automated scoring models um, are built on the back of human ratings. So when we build a system like this, we would give expert human raters some training on uh, particular kinds of questions, and um, then they would assign ratings. And then the automated scoring system would learn to imitate those human ratings 
based on the content of what people said or what they wrote. Um, and then it, it does that over and over again consistently. So it's a quite fair system because it doesn't get tired. It doesn't have particular um, likes or dislikes with, with regard to topics or the way that people say something or uh, the fact that they might make spelling errors because of, you know, it could be dyslexia or something. Those spelling errors can be separated out with, with machine scoring from the content of the message very effectively, whereas humans might tend to be affected by the appearance of something, by sloppy handwriting even. And so it takes away a lot of those nuisance human factors and allows us to provide relatively independent fair scores that are very highly correlated with what um, human readers would actually assign when they're doing it fairly. And in terms of you know making that system fair, that ability to differentiate, for example, between spelling errors and the actual message and being able to deal with complexities such as dialects, that's all built into this, the system in terms of the depth of uh, the testing and the database that you did. Is that right? It is, yeah. It's all in the training, just like you know, Google, for example, uses a lot of training data in order to make its search engines or speech recognition systems smarter. But we would do the same thing. If you want it to be able to, rep- to um, uh, accurately recognize speech with particular accents, then you include that in your training set, and then it will, um, it will reflect that accurately in its output. In terms of other kinds of biases and things that uh, humans might elicit, we can wash a lot of that out by having lots of data and having competing biases basically cancel each other out. So machine scoring can end up doing the same kind of job that you know, averaging out maybe like 50 or 100 human raters would do. So essentially it does uh, uh, the same thing and it keeps the important variation in scores and in performances and it kind of uh, gets rid of a lot of the nuisance variation. And, and finally, what are the three primary usages of the automated scoring and speech recognition systems that you've built? And why is it so important that we get testing of students right in these contexts? Um, the, the importance of getting um, the scoring right is that these scores can affect people's lives in very profound ways. One of the primary uses for our tests is to screen employees who would work in customer service situations. And in many cases, these are in places like India, the Philippines. Uh, and though in there, English is spoken as a variety. In some cases, people might even be native speakers of English. But the question is how intelligible they would be to um, U.S. customers, for example. So many of our customers are call centers and other customer service centers that hire people to, um, to um, man phones and, and chat lines. And so we, they would like a quick an easy determination of someone's general level of proficiency in English. And we provide that either in written or spoken formats. Um, And so those adult um, job seekers' lives really depend on them getting an accurate score and getting the job that they would like. Another context that's increasingly important in the United States is that of English learners in the public schools. It's uh, a very large population in some local school districts. It might be bigger than 80% of the students. And um, in some cases, they have recently come from their home country, or they might have been in in the United States for a generation, but um, their family speaks another language. And so they still exhibit characteristics of English learners in terms of their vocabulary, academic skills and reading and writing, etc. So um, we have, we offer tests that would measure their proficiency and allow us to determine whether they're making progress 
compared with their own baseline performance rather than just compared with other students or with what a standard might be for how much they could attain. And um, another uh, a kind of third context would be people that would like to study in an in English-speaking university, either in the States or in other uh, countries, or they want to migrate to those places. And in some cases, um, English skills can get you points or are a requirement for entering into those situations. So it really, uh, this is a very large population, and it really gets people in internationalized, essentially. People go abroad to study for several years, and they become a part of that culture. They absorb that culture, and it becomes a part of them as well. And um, so English skills are really the key to unlocking that integration or that assimil not assimilation, but that um, uh, interaction with the host culture. But what about how language learning can better accommodate a learner experience design approach to teacher and learner needs? So what we do here is uh, we develop our products uh, in liaison with teachers and students. And so we're frequently working with them here in the lab to test the products and services that uh, Pearson is releasing, uh, primarily into our global schools and English divisions. From a swanky purpose-built UX bunker at 80 The Strand, London, that's Nathan Harris, Director of User Experience and Design at Pearson, is working on exactly that, on how to build around user needs. I guess the observation room is like the cave type room, right? Yeah. So that that's the uh, yeah, that's the uh, the room from which we we observe uh, evaluations and products being tested, and then on the other side of the one way glass, we've got this large uh, sort of more brightly lit room, I guess, with a large screen at the front and. Um, Lots of beanbags and comfortable seating for uh, for people to work on. Yes, I know it's very present here. Lots of colourful beanbags. And can you give us some insight into some of the products that you've tested recently in here as well? Absolutely. So not just in product testing, but also in on the creative side. So we do co- we do co creation here, and you know we're frequently working with teachers and students to actually. Um, run generative uh, research, you know, to actually kind of try and create new insights and ways of learning and uh, breaking the ice with teachers and learners. So um, we've been working recently on some pretty interesting functionality around QR codes. And really uh, part of that is linking the textbook experience to digital learning for students and for teachers. What are your top tips for teachers constructing lessons and and learner experiences? So whether that's within ELT or kind of wider field, are there any early stage user experience tips that you could share in terms of how you might go about thinking of constructing learner experiences? So for teachers uh, building an experience for their learners, I guess something that we're really trying to do is to make that process simple for them and for them to allow for them to be able to express themselves through the tools that we create. And so we're looking much more at the flow of a lesson, the pedagogical flow, but also the ability to change pace, to uh, personalise for learners who have, you know, uh, are forging ahead or those who are falling behind. And increasingly to look at how we bring automated technologies to those scenarios, something we're working on at the moment if a student, say, performs below a certain threshold when doing some practice homework in English, can the system automatically 
without almost transparently to the student, provide them with an additional kind of pick-me-up activity, which the teacher then will be alerted to, the fact that they've been given this activity, and will be able to hone in on you know, how they did with the original activity, how they did with the follow-up, and then take additional remediative steps if necessary. And so we're trying to really balance the kind of needle between automation whilst not taking away control and personalization and humanity from the teacher's experience of the classroom and engagement with the students. And so I think there's a very fine uh, needle to balance between making things easier for teachers and allowing technology to take some of the load that traditionally they've taken and um, kind of taking that too far and almost uh, disempowering the teacher. So, near real-time language translation, VR exchange trips to Paris, UX lab work and automated second language test scoring all figure very much in our language learning present, with real opportunities and subsequent adaptations in language learning teaching happening as a result. We'd love to hear your thoughts on language learning and future tech. Tweet us at Podcast EdTech and at Dennis Hurley or check out the Pearson podcast page at tinyurl.com forward slash Pearson Future Tech for more info. I'll drop the full show notes and more at www.theedtechpodcast.com. Throughout human history, one of our big successes has been the development of more and more technology. So I'd say the first thing we need to do is shift expectations from mindsets to skill sets. We are so trained to fear AI. The AI-based design company seems to be at a distinct disadvantage. It's so cool that we can get students to engage with computations and so on. What should the humans do versus what should you let technology do? And that what is an application of skills and knowledge at a moment in time. They have enormous computing resources and the latest AI technology on their side. So as educators, we have to stop and say, How do we approach this? Artificial intelligence is a program or an algorithm that can function like a human. Their human rivals have all had years of industrial experience designing cars, bikes, and engines. Everybody's got to be in a learning business. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more on AI, languages, gaming, assessment without tests, and personalized learning, make sure you subscribe to the EdTech Podcast on iTunes, where you can also leave a review. Thanks for listening in and we look forward to hearing your own future tech for education related stories.